Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Teacher's Lounge, an internet radio show just for teachers. Thanks you so much for joining us. Let's kind of gather around and talk a little education, shall we? Hopefully your week's been going pretty well. Carl Menninger is quoted as saying, what the teacher is is more important than what he teaches. Let me read that one more time for you. What the teacher is is more important than what he teaches. And basically, that can send all sorts of messages to you. Uh, something it says to me is, think back to your teachers. Do you remember specifically more about what they taught you as far as curriculum? Or do you remember more about their character and how they conducted themselves and how they treated you? Chances are I'm willing to bet that you probably remember the teacher more as a person and how they conducted themselves with students in the classroom much more than any curriculum that was set before you. And I like that quote. Now, something to remember as we go into our classrooms tomorrow morning, and some of you are overwhelmed and stressed out by all this curriculum that you have to teach. Curriculum is important. We have to teach students the curriculum that's laid before us. But remember, when it's all said and done and those students walk out of your classroom for the final time, they're going to remember you as an individual and how you treated students and how you conducted yourself in the classroom, whether you were positive or negative, enthusiastic and passionate, or were you bored to tears. They're going to remember the type of person you are, and you're going to have that reputation in their minds for years to come. And that's going to be lasting much more longer in their minds than anything curriculum-wise that we taught them. There's a famous quote from Aristotle. It says, educating the mind without educating the heart is no education at all. Things come and go, especially in education, right? Things are always changing in our profession. But relationships with our students will always be what matters. And that's a recurring thing we bring up as a reminder is on the Teacher's Lounge podcast. And because that's something that all these successful teachers voice is connecting and forming relationships with students. And there's so many benefits with establishing those relationships. So I want to encourage you, especially this time of year, as we're counting down to, to the next break, you've been with your students for a good while. Do you even know that much about them outside of the, your own opinion of what you see? I know from the successful teachers I see at my school, so many of them form great relationships with their students. doesn't mean that every day is perfect, but man, so many of the other problems other teachers are struggling with, these guys don't because they know their students. They've formed connections, and it really is truly remarkable to where I'm like, hey, if I had children, I would hope they would be in these particular teachers' classrooms because not only are they creative and presenting the contact effectively, but they really do enjoy having their students around them, and they enjoy coming to work and, and forming those relationships with the kids. might be thinking, you know what, I have it pretty bad here. It's going to be a rough week for me. Well, I can guarantee you that there's another teacher out there who's going to have it much more worse than you. Typically, we get discouraged pretty easily in our classrooms when we can only think it could be worse. It definitely is worse out there for someone else. And we'll be talking with someone who 
walked into a situation most of us would never have entered in the first place, and they made, took that lemon and turned it into lemonade. In fact, they even had a movie about their story as well as a book. Erin Gruwal is going to be our guest on the program today, and she's going to, to tell you an incredible story, inspirational story, one that you might even need to listen to as your batteries are getting close to being dead at this time of year. Joining us in the lounge today is Aaron Gruwell. Currently, Aaron serves as president of the Freedom Writers Foundation. We're going to get to that in a moment. But Aaron has a fantastic story that's going to motivate a lot of us in the audience, especially this time of year. Maybe you're discouraged and you need some motivation. You definitely want to make sure you tune in to Aaron's story. And she's also associated with the book, The Freedom Writers Diary, How a Teacher and 150 Teens Use Writing to Change Themselves and the World Around Them. It's an amazing story of strength, courage, and achievement in the face of adversity, and her story shows how one person's actions against violence can snowball into a movement for peace and tolerance. And with that, Erin, welcome to our program. Um, thank you, Brian. It's an honor, and I, I always am so humbled at the opportunity to, to share our story. You have an amazing story, so I want to go back to your college days. What in the world made you want to become a teacher? You know, I often say that it's the Los Angeles riots. I had planned to be a lawyer and actually studied to do so and until we had the Los Angeles riots. And it was such a dramatic experience that I realized I'd rather fight battles in a classroom than fighting battles in a courtroom. And it was just a pivotal moment that made me want to work with at-risk kids who saw the riots and or participated in the riots firsthand. And so... Long Beach just happened to be a community that was hit very hard by the Rodney King verdict and those riots, and actually had 126 murders the summer before I began teaching. And so it seemed like the, the perfect place for me to, to try to make a difference. I think it was a calling. I hope it was a calling. And I just felt this gravitational pull to a community that was nearing transition and a, a community in chaos. You know, I grew up in suburbia, and so the idea of... of being a teacher never crossed my mind, let alone teaching in an inner city school. But when I made the decision to make a difference, I felt like that was that was the perfect place, and it was the perfect school at the perfect time. Did you have a lot of people telling you why in the world do you want to go in that type of environment and try to discourage you from doing so? The biggest cynic was my father. I often refer to him as this lovable curmudgeon, and my father reminded me that teachers don't make any money, which we all know to be true. Oh, yes. He wanted me to wear a bulletproof vest, which I did not wear because it did not match my pearls. And he was just very fearful of the situation. You know, I had kids who actually did bring guns to school with them rather than, you know, calculators or pocket protectors. And so it was definitely a dangerous and dicey environment. And my father was very fearful for me, as were some of my friends. But the more cynical they all were, the more I wanted to prove them wrong. So here you are. You're in the early mid-20s. You're excited about teaching, and 1994, you go to room 203 at Woodrow Wilson High School in Long Beach, California, and you faced your first group of students dubbed by the administration as unteachable, at-risk teenagers, basically an attitude of sure-to-drop-out students. You go to the school, which was tough, racially divided, and gang-infested fights and murders, part of the students' experiences. Some kids came from bad backgrounds. What were those first few days like for you as you went into that type of environment? 
was very racially divided due to fat and comfort zones based on race. African-Americans in one corner, Latinos in another corner, Asians in another. My first period on my first day, I had one Caucasian, and he was petrified. And I remember looking at the sea of students who admitted they'd never read a book from cover to cover, nor did they intend to. And they kind of sized me up with my polka dots and my pearls and this perceived white privilege. And there was this sense that there's no way that this, this teacher's going to make it. You know, this cheerleader from hell from suburbia. How is she going to help us survive? And so my class really became like uh, Las Vegas. Students were taking bets and wagers. How long was I going to make it? And the first story in the Freedom Wars Diary so profoundly points out that, that first day where the student was actually saying that the classroom looked like a bad rerun of cops. You know, here were all these students with rap sheets, students who'd been in juvenile hall, students who'd been in boot camp, students who'd been in continuation school, detention programs, students who came from rehab or crystal meth or crack cocaine, students with learning disabilities, students who had ADD or ADHD, and all of them across the board scored below the 25th percentile on a standardized test. And so this was not a group of students joining hands and singing Kumbaya. This is not a group of students eager to, to dive into books and literature and, and to bring reading and writing to life. What was your attitude as you approached this students with this background? Do you go in really strict and firm? Do you go in, you know, hey, how's everybody doing? But what kind of mindset and attitude do you, do you convey to your students in those early days? I think with every teacher, every good teacher, I hope to say, there's this belief that kids can make it, um, regardless of statistics and data and test scores. And so my mindset really was, I, I want to reach these kids. I, I want to build a bridge between what they know and what I want to teach them. And, and to do so, I need to know who they are and where they're coming from and what kind of baggage they're carrying. And, and very early on, I realized that that baggage was so dramatic and so pretty. You know, students who were standing in assembly lines at funeral parlors, students who'd been to more funerals than birthdays, students who had been to 44 foster homes before their 14th birthday, students who'd never met their deadbeat dad, students who'd been evicted and were homeless. And so how are we going to concentrate on Homer and Shakespeare when we don't know where the next minute's from? How are we going to concentrate on Homer and Shakespeare when you don't know if you're going to make it home alive? I really needed to learn who these 14-year-olds were that were sitting before me who were so angry and who had such provocative baggage and who didn't want to read or write and, and didn't see themselves in the pages of a book. And what I needed to do was to, to give these young people a voice and to show them that through storytelling, everyone has a story and that the most important thing for them to do is first and foremost learn from other people's stories and then be inspired to write their own. How did they treat you in those first few days, in those first few weeks? Initially, the students were horrendous. They threw the syllabi back at me in the form of an airplane. They tagged the desks and scrawled their names in graffiti across from the desks. One of the students, she wrote in her journal for two weeks straight, I hate Aaron Gruel, I hate Aaron Gruel, and if I wasn't on probation, I would probably shrink her. And as a sweet little girl from suburbia, I didn't even know what shanking was at that point. I just knew it wasn't good. And so it, it was really a challenge. Here was a, a group of students who didn't want to be there and, you know, felt trapped and felt ignored. And, and education always in this place that had discarded them and had minimized, you know, who they were. 
And so I was just another teacher in, in a conveyor belt of teachers who, in, they, in their minds, thought they were dumb, told them they were stupid, and treated them like they were nothing. And I, I had to prove them wrong. Did you ever come to a point where you were like, what am I doing here? Yeah, I think every teacher has those moments of frustration, even in the best of circumstances and the best of classes. Yes, I fought back tears. I questioned my profession. I listened to the proverbial, I told you so. I was ready to throw in the towel many times, but luckily I, I persevered. And so I think every teacher has those moments, those moments of feeling like there's Sisyphus rolling a rock up a hill just to have the rock roll right back down. And so with education, you have to be flexible and you have to learn from your mistakes and you have to seize on those teachable moments. And so I'm just fortunate that there were so many teachable moments. So instead of turning in your two-week notice like most teachers would do under those circumstances, you were busy trying to form relationship with these kids and find teaching material that they would be able to relate to and Tell us about how Anne Frank fit in on this. You know, I think there was one moment with the racial caricature that was passed around, depicting my students' facial features. A horrible moment. And what made this moment so incredibly volatile is this young student had been transferred from his previous high school because he actually did bring a gun to his English class and threatened to, to shoot his teacher. And so I knew that this moment was, you know, here's a kid who's used to being picked on. When his back is against the wall, he reaches for a gun, and suddenly he is the person who's being ridiculed and picked on for something that is no fault of his own, you know, facial characteristics. And so I, I knew this was such a difficult moment, and if I didn't seize upon that and, and make it a teachable moment, that it would have erupted. And Sherrod probably would have reached for that gun, and there probably would have been a shooting, and you know, come Saturday morning there would be another funeral, and come Sunday there would be another retaliation, and that, that horrible cycle of violence would have continued. And so that moment is what changed everything, and, and basically drawing a correlation between that note and Nazi propaganda artwork and the Holocaust was this riveting moment that made my students ask this critical question, what is the Holocaust? And at that moment I realized that pain is pain, and it's universal, and it doesn't matter if you are a young Jewish boy in Poland or if you are a kid living in the streets of, of an inner city like Long Beach or someone in the streets of Bosnia-Herzegovina in the midst of ethnic cleansing. I just realized that I have got to use this horrific moment of intolerance to, to teach my students how to be tolerant. Were they open to that at first? Or did it take them a while for them to catch on? They were and they weren't. I think there was more curiosity. They'd never heard of the Holocaust. You know, they were teenagers, and they'd never heard that word before. They hadn't, It was before Shemar's had come out. It was before, in, in many schools, it was required curriculum. And so I realized, in order to really bring this story to life, I have to do it in the most shocking of ways. I, I need to have them read Anne Frank's story and Ellie Wiesel's story and, and take them to the Museum of Tolerance and and bring in Holocaust survivors who were their age when this atrocity happened. And to have those Auschwitz survivors pull up their shirts and show their tattoo of how they were stripped of their dignity and their humanity and really get in my students' faces and tell them, you know, evil prevails when good people do nothing. There are millions of people who are no longer on this planet 
because of man's inhumanity and the things that you're doing on the streets of Long Beach because of rival gangs and because of the color of your skin or the bandana from your back pocket or the gang affiliation that you have, this is what, you know, is going to lead to that kind of atrocity. It may not be in record numbers as it was in Auschwitz, but no one should lose their life to senseless violence. And I think that really is what galvanized all of us to, to realize that evil could no longer prevail because there, there were good people and those good people had to stand up and do something in the face of intolerance. So they started making intense connections to these stories that you were presenting to them and being able to relate. And you started doing something where each student began to keep his or her own diary recording stories that was going on and prevalent in their own lives, correct? Yes. Well, we did is we started following in the footsteps of, of a young diarist, Anne Frank, who kept her diary and wrote to Kitty, and a young girl in Sarajevo named Sata Filipov, which she wrote to me, her diary. And we started looking at the power of, of using a piece of paper as an obituary or using that piece of paper as your confidant or using that piece of paper as a way to have a cathartic moment where you could purge all of the things that you'd seen, all the things that you experienced, and all the things that you knew, and, and chronicle it and put it on paper and, and purge it. And it became this very liberating experience that eventually brought these kids together, eventually led to us binding these stories together as a book. And, and to this day became this incredible testament to the lives of 150 kids when we decided to take those stories and to publish them in a book. Did they give you their journals of these stories? Did you talk about them as a class? Did they just keep it to themselves initially at first? A combination of everything. I ended up getting computers donated. And the idea of the computers was we could make these stories anonymous. We could give each kid a number and... Um, they could type in 12-point font, Times New Roman, double-spaced, and turn these stories in anonymously, and we would edit them, and we would read them, and we would make suggestions, and it would inspire other kids to write that similar story and to realize, I'm not alone. I'm not the only kid who has contemplated suicide. I'm not the only kid who has parents who are not available. I'm not the only kid who's been in foster care. And I think the more these stories came in, the deeper the students dove and the more they shared it with their soul. And it was really like bearing witness. And that initially was just experiments. We never envisioned that we would have a publishing deal. We never envisioned that it would be a book. We never envisioned that it would become a curriculum in schools. And so I think for all of us, it's a very humbling experience. We just, we just wanted to be real. And we just wanted to, you know, and, and those moments of vulnerability and then those moments of exposing our, our story. Um, it led to something much bigger than ourselves. My name is Aaron Buell. Schools are divided into separate tribes. I'm not sitting near him. I can't go back there alone. Man, I know you ain't talking to me. We kill each other over race, pride, and respect. We fight for our America. Here, or the Cambodians, or the blacks, or the whites, or whoever they are. If they weren't here, everything would be better for you. Lady, stop acting like you're trying to understand our situation. Why don't you explain it to me? You're a first-time teacher. You can't make someone want an education. From this moment on, the person you were, that person's turn is over. Everyone has their own story. 
We're going to write in these journals. Nobody listens to a teenager, and they don't see the wars we fight every day. To the police I don't even know how this then I had gunshots. She told us we have something to say to people. Ms. G wanted us to put our diaries together in a book, just like Anne Frank. She got this businessman, John Two, to donate 35 computers so we could work. She told us we have something to say to people. We weren't just kids in a class anymore. We were writers with our own voices, our own stories, and even if nobody else read it, the book would be something to leave behind that said we were here. This is what happened. We mattered. Even if it was just to each other. And we won't forget. Miss G didn't promise it would get published or anything, but we could get it out there ourselves. And that is a clip taken from the movie The Freedom Riders. And The Freedom Riders is based on the adventures of classroom teacher Aaron Gruel, who is our guest on the program today. You got them on this journey of writing journals and expressing what goes on in their lives into writing. So how did it go from that point to the Freedom Writers? I showed an amazing video about the 60s activists, the Freedom Writers, with the idea that if I could show the power of people coming together and the power of of young people standing out for real change. And in watching the, the courage of these 1960s freedom writers who wrote buses, it sparked this idea that we could call ourselves freedom writers because because we wrote and that, you know, writing was a way to set us free. And then we needed something to do with our stories. And so we had this idea that we would once again follow in the footsteps of those original freedom writers from the 60s and go to Washington, D.C. and to give our stories to someone, someone who mattered. And we chose the, the Secretary of Education. And it became this life-altering experience of, you know, 150 kids who'd never been on a plane or stayed in a hotel and, and coming together and raising the money and that importantly raising awareness of, of our, our story and taking them to Washington, D.C. and then hand-delivering them to the Secretary of Education. It gave us the encouragement that maybe these stories don't have to stay contained to Room 203 in, in Long Beach, California, and Wilson High. You know, maybe we can get them out into the world, you know, like a message in a bottle. And so we spent another year, like a message in a bottle, sending these stories to publishing houses. And luckily, we were able to get publishing deals from Random House, which is, at that point, it was a division of Doubleday. What obstacles did you have in trying to get that done? You know, it was free to be- got rejected by every publishing house that initially we sent to, which I heard that Dr. Seuss got, I think, rejected by over 80. So that that's, we're in good standing because I think we only were rejected by half that. But I think every time we got rejected, it made us feel that we can come back stronger. And ironically, I think that we didn't really know how our story was going to be perceived and who was going to be our audience. And I think, shot low, we thought maybe the only people that will read the story will be students or maybe the classroom teachers. And the fact that it's had such mainstream appeal and it's transcended, you know, classrooms and teachers and academia and, and it's made play into the hands of parents and community members and activists. I think that's the most provocative thing for all of us is that it has made such a difference outside of what we thought was going to be the intended audience. What was the students' reactions? I, I think even to this 
Okay, I have to be honest. We are a, a very humble bunch, and I, I love that about my students, that there's this sense of humility of, you know, once again, it's bigger than all of us. We are blessed that people give us the opportunity to, to tell our story, and like about every every time we do an interview, we just have that kind of gosh shucks mentality. And I think my students got that from Holocaust survivors, and we've met these Holocaust survivors who have tirelessly told their story. They have said repeatedly, you know, we're telling the story for the millions of people who are no longer able to tell that story. And I think that for the students and myself, what a gift that we can speak for so many kids and so many teachers who are, are desperate to be noticed and have stories that are harder and more dramatic than ours, but, you know, haven't had the opportunity to get a microphone or to be interviewed or to have the public's eyes. The never to lose sight of, in that moment, of telling a story, make it count, make it relevant, and make it for others. And I, I think that's something that I, I really want to tribute back to those wonderful Holocaust survivors who, in that that moment, you know, if we met a survivor, they were telling the story of, of 12 million people who didn't have the opportunity to tell a story. What are some of those stories? Everything under the sun that a teenager goes through, struggling with identity, and but more importantly, struggling with cities that live in transition, a city in flux, a lot of violence and gang intervention. And so it's stories about burying friends, losing colleagues, going to funerals, contemplating suicide, running with the wrong crowd, but it also has tremendous stories about being prom queen and, and being elected student body president and planning to go to college and being the first in their family and you know, all of those things that you see in the in the scope of a of a high school career. And since the stories are written anonymously and, and over that four year plan, it's amazing how some of the stories are very, very hopeful and, and some of the stories are very, very sad. And I think that is what's been so important for the readers is to realize none of these stories were censored. That all these stories really illuminate the pain and the growth and the transformation that teenagers can go through. What would you like to see happen to inner city schools? It's not about money. I don't think money is just like throwing a band-aid on a shotgun wound. Um, it's what you do with it. It's about giving teachers the liberation to teach to a kid and, and not to a task and allow them to create relationships and allow them to make education relevant. You got to have smaller class size. You got to have environments for kids to feel safe. And you have to have teachers who are dynamic and curious enough and critical thinkers who can say, you know what? I need to think outside the box. I need to reach these kids because this classic textbook is not doing it. And this rigid set of rules is not doing it. And it's all about making kids put down that fist, put down that gun and pick up a pen. And using that pen to change their lives, what the Freedom Rise and I have done is really focus on creative teacher training and empowerment and making these teachers feel like they are agents of change. You know, they're accountable to every single one of those kids, and those kids are the stakeholders. And that if you mentor them and empower them and enlighten them, and at the end of the day, these kids are truly engaged in their own education, that's where you're going to see real change. It's not because we put in their hands a shiny new laptop computer. It's not because we have state-of-the-art gyms. It's really about relationships. And I think these young people are just really passionate about changing the world by changing education. And if we do so one kid, one teacher, and one classroom at a time, that's our mission.
Fantastic. So we want to encourage our listeners, check out the website, www.freedomwritersfoundation.org. There you'll get more information about Aaron, what they do. You can check out the book, The Freedom Writers Diary. And what was the other book that just came out? Teaching Hope, written by, for, and about teachers. It's really an amazing expose of what it means to be a teacher in a contemporary classroom. Of course, also, there's the movie that they based on your story. The movie is called Freedom Writers. And I want to thank Aaron for appearing on our program. Oh, well, thank you. I will partner with anyone who wants to fight the good fight for kids. So thank you for, for being our partner on this and for for really trying to inspire teachers. Thank you for, for allowing this program to be a voice and to be an advocate for all those teachers who need just a little something extra. So thank you and everything that you're doing for all of those teachers out there. Thank you very much, Aaron. Aaron Gruwell, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for appearing on our program. 